This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Afghan refugee families are becoming increasingly frustrated with lengthy waiting times for visas. The Department of Home Affairs has acknowledged demand is outstripping supply and is asking for patience. But in a bid to help local Hazara families reunite and amid a worker shortage, a country shire in Western Australia is trying to speed up the process. Asha Couch reports. In her adopted home of Mount Barker, in Western Australia's Great Southern Region, Afghan Hazara woman Zara Azimi is preparing a meal for her family. She came to Australia to escape the Taliban, and now she's trying to help relatives do the same. First, my sister came to Pakistan. Then my brother followed because my father used to work for the government. The Taliban had brutally beaten him once with the bottom end of a gun and he's now scared they'll come after him in Pakistan. Known for its wine, the region's vineyards employ many Hazaras, including Zara Azimi's husband, Nasser. It's been 10 years since the family has seen some of their relatives and he's worried about how long it's taking for visas to get approved. Everybody is worried about the family, but the process is very slow, you know. We apply, we filling the form, we doing everything for the process soon, but still not going better. Fatima Salman Ali is another member of the local Hazara community, and she says Australia has given her great opportunities. Uh, We are able to manage our lives, pay tax and make a living. And we want the refugees from Afghanistan to get out of this poverty and helplessness. Many of the Hazara people here are on temporary visas, meaning they can't sponsor family members. But the Plantagenet Shire president, Chris Pavlovich, says the local council is offering to help by backing visa applications. And we've also agreed to propose, which is be responsible for some of the people that don't have the ability to uh, bring people in, look after them into Plantagenet. So we're helping the locals help, help themselves. And that includes the council helping new arrivals find housing and jobs. They're very hard workers. Uh, they really appreciate the opportunity they have here in the, in the Great Southern. And, uh, and, uh, and they're also great members of the community. In a statement, a Department of Home Affairs spokeswoman says processing humanitarian visas for Afghans remains a priority. But the department is asking for patience because the number of applications exceeds the number of visas available. Asha Couch reporting there. Experts are warning new variants are developing during China's fresh COVID wave, putting countries around the world on high alert. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports. As hospitals across China fill up during a major COVID outbreak, authorities have raced to set up fever clinics to take pressure off the overwhelmed health system. But the clinics don't appear to test or vaccinate patients, instead giving them medicine and telling them to rest. Some people on the streets of Shanghai say they're struggling to get support as pharmacies scramble for drugs. Getting medicine is very difficult, but it can still be solved. Some people may have kept some from the past or they could borrow medicines from colleagues. Unless you have very serious COVID symptoms and need medical help, it's easily solved. 
Two weeks ago, China dramatically reopened the country, abandoning a zero-COVID policy that's meant years of restrictions. Many Chinese people are welcoming the easing. I support the decision. It's been quite a while since the lockdown measures took place. The government also says it's just like mild symptoms, so I quite support such a move. While the public now has the freedom to go out, many are choosing to stay home or they're sick with COVID. So Shanghai's streets and shops are deserted. In the past, there were just 10 million people travelling through the metro, but now we have just 2 to 3 million people. This means the outbreak is very serious. People either work from home or have been infected. Chinese authorities say there have been less than 10 COVID deaths this month, figures which are being disputed globally. British health data firm Airfinity says it's likely more than 5,000 people are dying from COVID a day in China. University of Hong Kong researchers found almost a million people could die of the virus in China in 2023 if there's no mass fourth-dose scheme and the distribution of antiviral drugs. Virologist Dr Siddharth Sridhar is from the university. I think the main worry with China is that the vaccination rate, although the figure for two doses is decent, the booster rates for the elderly population is uh, still quite low. China's reportedly set a goal to vaccinate 90% of people over 80 by January. Experts fear new variants could develop during China's outbreak, but believe there's enough vaccination and natural immunity to protect the global population. I think uh, many virologists in the world are watching this outbreak very carefully because when you have a very major outbreak in a large population that can always uh, spin off new variants because the uh, virus is circulating so much. It has so many opportunities to mutate to something else. This is Avani Dias reporting for AM. In the United States, the death tolls rising from a powerful blizzard in the state of New York. Thousands of people are without power, with the storm sending temperatures plunging well below freezing. Officials say they haven't seen anything like it in more than 45 years, with some places recording more than 125 centimetres of snow within 48 hours. With more, here's Matt Bamford. An Arctic blast pounds the streets of Buffalo, New York. A thick blanket of snow covers the road, trapping cars, and visibility is poor. This is a snowstorm of epic proportions. We talk about blizzards. This is one of those blizzards that we're going to remember forever. Ed Dranch is a reporter for Good Morning Buffalo. For several days, the storm has paralysed much of the state, even trapping emergency crews. There were emergency crews stuck in the snow. They couldn't move. So two-thirds of our firefighting equipment, our apparatus, was stuck in snowbanks. They had to be rescued themselves. For a long time here, at the height of the storm, there were no emergency services available at all. So if you were to call 911 for help, you could be waiting hours upon hours to be rescued. The blizzard has proved fatal, with at least 25 confirmed deaths in New York State so far, and some news outlets are reporting twice that number nationally. Local officials say they included people trapped in cars and those who suffered cardiac arrests while removing snow. At least one person has died from carbon monoxide poisoning, a result of furnaces blocked by the heavy falls. With temperatures plunging well below freezing, Ed Dranch says people have been struggling to stay warm. More than 10,000 people are without power. It's cold here. 
and people are trying to find desperate ways to stay warm, find food, and take care of their families. There are search and rescue operations underway right now. Crews are coming in from outside of Western New York to really try and help. We've got 400 members of our National Guard here in Western New York. And so to be in this kind of a situation where resources have to come to us in blinding conditions, blinding blizzard conditions, snow is blowing all over the place, you can't see anything. So that's the problem that these crews are facing. The effects of this storm are being felt across the north and eastern parts of the US. Strong winds have taken down power lines in several states. More than 20,000 homes in the state of Maine are without power. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says the extreme event has become a national concern. The National Guard is here. Uh, last year, I'll say I've been in contact with the White House. Just spoke in the last hour with Ron Klain, the chief of staff to President Biden. He has assured me that within a very short time of them receiving our our request for a disaster declaration, it will be granted. The president is very concerned about this. Uh, He said, whatever you need from the White House, we will be there for you. And I'm grateful to President Biden for that support as well. Despite the widespread impact, relief is expected to arrive today as the storm moves away from western New York and the snow eases. Matt Bamford reporting the... As thousands of us head to the beach today for some cool relief, we're being asked to think about sharks. Not out of concern for swimmers' safety, but to consider the sharks, turtles, whales and other marine life caught by nets and baited traps every year. These measures are used only in Queensland and New South Wales. Conservationists want them replaced by what they argue are less harmful but equally effective methods. But the state governments aren't convinced. Annie Guest reports. At Malulabar on the Sunshine Coast, these swimmers feel reassured by the offshore shark nets and baited hooks, known as drumlines. We like those nets and I wouldn't like nets to be removed. What about you? Same here. I think it's super important for us. Shark nets and baited hooks are only used in Queensland and New South Wales. These states recorded 10 of Australia's 24 shark attacks in 2021. Queensland's nets are less than 190 metres long and stretch six metres below the surface. Conservationist Cassie Much from Sea Shepherd says there's no evidence these incomplete barriers improve swimmer safety, but they do harm sea life. The whales may um, be freed successfully a lot of the time, but for marine life like turtles, seabirds, rays, that's not the case, unfortunately. New South Wales' latest figures show... 33 white tiger and whaler sharks were ensnared in nets over 12 months, along with 343 other animals, including turtles. In Queensland, there were almost 1,000 entanglements, mostly sharks and also including whales and turtles. This harm to marine life is unacceptable for these Sunshine Coast beachgoers. I would prioritise that over accessibility of the beach to people. It's their environment. That's the way I've always looked at it, yeah. Madeline Riley is a shark bite mitigation and risk researcher from Flinders University. She says there are alternatives that can protect swimmers as well as marine life. You've also got spotting, like, shark planes that fly overhead and drones and also tracking and tagging of sharks. So that's area mitigation. And secondly, we've got personal mitigation. That includes chain mail wetsuits, 
and also electronic deterrents. In the literature, we've found that generally electric deterrents work the best. Some have reduced the likelihood of a bite by 60%. So as part of the Nets Out Now coalition, Sea Shepherd is calling for the removal of shark nets at a minimum during whale migration season in Queensland. New South Wales already does this and we are calling for the removal of shark nets and drumlines entirely and for them to be replaced with non-lethal modern-day alternatives. In a statement to AM, the Queensland government says it's funding trials of alternatives, including drones, but until they're proven effective, it won't change current arrangements. And while the New South Wales Primary Industries Minister, Dugald Saunders, recently told the ABC he's fairly happy with the state's nets, drumlines, drones and other measures... He suggested councils survey beachgoers for their views on removing nets. Annie Guest reporting. We've heard about GP shortages around the nation, which has meant some country towns and regions are without a doctor. But there are major concerns about a severe shortage of vets, both in rural and metro areas, compounded by long-standing issues around wages, workload and incentives for rural work. Those in the industry warn the problem's growing and could have serious implications for human and animal health, as well as biosecurity. Gavin Coote reports. Recruiting new veterinarians in regional Australia has long been a challenge, but now it feels nearly impossible. You pretty much can only recruit new graduates and then it gets a lot harder to find somebody with any experience. Chelsea Mitchell is a senior vet who owns Gunnedah Veterinary Hospital in northwest New South Wales. It's a busy region for a vet. Back-to-back floods have added to the workload in assessing livestock and wildlife. And yet getting enough staff is more difficult than ever. In the last sort of five years, I'd say we've had about three job ads out and we've had zero actual applications and zero interest. While it's always been tricky enticing veterinary workers to the bush, the pandemic has compounded workforce issues with fewer graduates and the supply of overseas vets drying up. Chelsea Mitchell worries about what it could mean for animal health. There are a few clinics now surrounding us which don't offer an after-hours service anymore. And then those veterinarians in the surrounding towns are now picking up extra work and it sort of just compounds the problems. Then we just experience a higher workload, more burnout, people are more likely to leave. The Australian Veterinary Association says while the workforce crisis is nationwide, regional and rural areas are feeling it the most. Bronwyn Orr is its president. Unfortunately, we have heard of towns in WA, rural New South Wales and Queensland who have lost their local vet. Most of the time it's due to retirement of a single practitioner and with no vets coming along to replace them, it means that these towns are completely losing access to veterinary services and they're having to travel quite some distance to the next town to access a veterinarian. You know, the additional travel time of 45 minutes an hour or a couple of hours can absolutely mean the difference between life and death when it comes to, you know, a snake bite or some other accident. There's a lot at stake, especially since vets are on the front line of managing biosecurity threats, such as lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease. Bronwyn Orr wants the federal government to consider wiping the university debts of veterinary graduates who live and work in rural areas. 
It's a scheme that's already been made available for doctors and nurse practitioners. The good news is the behind the scenes architecture, the administration, it's already there. It's all set up. We just need to add vets to the list. And we know that New Zealand has been doing this, a very similar program for more than a decade, and it's very successful. A short term solution that it's hoped will get more veterinarians into regional and rural areas. Gavin Coote reporting. A summer by the pool is a pastime many of us enjoy, but for some, it's an experience with cultural, religious or other barriers. After a nearly two-year push, a Perth council has introduced women's only pool sessions, and for many, it means the chance to learn how to swim. Isabel Masali reports. For the first time in her life, 28-year-old Sarah is dipping her toes into a public swimming pool. I love it. And, you know, we've got friends and my sisters are with me. Yeah, we have fun here. As a Muslim woman, it's been difficult to find appropriate facilities. But this summer, a program in Perth's outer suburb of Beachborough is hoping to change that, with women's only sessions two hours a week in a private, safe and culturally appropriate space. I'm not allowed to be, like, half naked in front of men. I wouldn't be comfortable wearing all, yeah, all clothes and be hopping into the swimming pool and not doing what I feel comfortable doing with when there's men around me. It also opens doors to women who avoid the pool for other reasons, including domestic violence survivors and those with body image concerns. In this small indoor pool, you'll find women swimming laps, female instructors giving lessons, and kids enjoying a rare trip to the pool with their mum. While they're enjoying it now, it's been a long time coming. The idea was initially rejected by the City of Swan Council over concerns it was exclusive rather than inclusive. Resident Alia Alziadi has been the driving force for nearly two years. We feel more comfortable and we feel so happy. doesn't matter about uh, your background, your religious, your what you like. This is mean you are equal. As part of the program, several women are learning to swim for the first time. For Jacqueline Abayi, it wasn't religious or cultural barriers preventing her before. It was her age. The fact that we are also older and it's a bit embarrassing trying to be in a pool full of um, all the other young age groups, but um, closing this and making it available for the women only at this time is quite um, a necessity. It's just the latest in a growing list of women's only and men's only programs across the country, as Royal Life Saving Australia tries to address the higher drowning risk in multicultural communities. Achol Madong is the inclusion manager for the WA branch. Given the country that we live in, we are surrounded by water. It's very important that all members of our community have access to you know, swimming lessons. Their research shows adult migrants get multiple benefits, including better physical and mental health and making new friends. While there are more opportunities now, Achol Madong believes more needs to be done to make swimming accessible for everyone. Women's only or men's only or... You know, reducing the price, I'm not sure what it is, but we need to work together to ensure that every member feels comfortable. The Beachborough program in Perth is still a trial, but many hope it'll win over council support and become permanent beyond this summer. Isabel Masali with additional reporting by Tabarak al Jarud, And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.